With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. So I'd like to call to order today's uh, meeting of the Boundary County Library Board. I think that we're going to get a lot of input today. There's probably 135 people who've showed up to this meeting. They're singing all these Christian hymns. I have to have a police escort to get into the building for safety. People are armed. That's Kimber Glidden. She's 52 years old, originally from Alaska. She's a grandmother. And what she's describing is a 2022 library board meeting that took place in Boundary County. The population of Boundary County, a mostly rural northern Idaho outpost on the Canadian border, is about 13,300. Normally you'd get maybe five or six people showing up to attend the average library board meeting, but not today. Today the room is packed and it's loud. If it's insensitive to the children, it should not be in the library orchestra. Right, amen. People are flashing guns, they're demanding written promises that the library won't stock pornography. Something that no public library in the country does anyway. I'm here today to voice my opposition to graphic novels containing pornography being introduced into our library. I understand these books are not in our library at this time, but I don't want to wait until they are in our library to voice objection to them. And if materials and activities such as these previously mentioned are brought into our library, then minors will almost certainly be exposed to them and we are here to put the library board and staff on notice that we vehemently oppose and will fight to keep inappropriate materials out of the hands of minors. Outside, there's a bunch of churchgoers. They're there protesting the meeting. Among them are members of what's called the Lordship Church. That's on the Southern Poverty Law Center's list of known hate groups. And one of the women here, she's blowing a horn at the top of her lungs. It's a shofar. A ram's horn, often used for religious ceremonies. But using it in the form of uh, declaring biblical war against the library. When she first accepted the job, Kimber had no idea this is what she was signing up for. This isn't what being a librarian is supposed to entail. But increasingly, for many librarians around the country, this is the reality. I'm Omar Alakad, and this is Without. On today's episode, we look at libraries. Perhaps the last truly communal indoor space in America and one that has been tasked with shouldering all the social burdens no other government-funded institution will touch, from homelessness to addiction. And as a result, libraries have become not only one of our most overextended public services, but also a central battleground in this country's raging culture wars. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to True Spies. 
the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark disappeared bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So, how does a tiny library end up in the middle of a cultural firestorm? Well, it starts small. A few months earlier, in February of 2022, we had a woman come to one of the board meetings and ask if we had the book Gender Queer. Gender Queer is a graphic memoir written and illustrated by Maya Kobabe. It's a story about identity, sexuality, and a person coming to terms with the idea that they don't fit into a binary definition of gender. As far as Kimber knew, no one in this small town had ever come asking for it before today. And it caught me completely off guard. It was just out of the blue. I said, we don't have that book in the collection. Up until this point, Kimber just thinks she's dealing with a curious library patron. And then she's like, well would you put the book in the collection? And I said, well, that would really depend on demand for for that title because we're such a small library, conservative community. I said, if I had one or two people ask for it, I would get it via interlibrary loan for them. I said, if I had 10 or 15 people asking for that book, I would add it to the collection. That's my job as a librarian is to make sure the community has the materials that fit their, their needs and their requests. And that was the wrong thing to say to her. (laughs) Pretty well overnight, Kimber becomes a target in one of the most heated of America's culture wars. The War on Libraries. Okay, so the American Library Association in 2021 counted at least 729 censorship attempts targeting a record 1,597 books. Uh, Once the full data is released, uh, 2022 is set to... Um, overtake that record. We shared with you earlier this week the list of books the Urbandale School District planned to ban this next school year, but earlier today, the district updated their list, cutting over 300 books. But for Kimber Glidden, book bans were just the beginning. Not long after that first patron came in asking about genderqueer, virtually every facet of her job gets turned on its head. Then I start getting all the phone calls. All the phone calls start coming in because our board meetings are only once a month. So we go from maybe four or five people at a board meeting to now we have 15 people. It quickly escalated. Then there's armed people (laughs) at the, the library meetings. And they all want to make sure that book doesn't get in. Now they're looking at the collection. How come kids can check out these books? They bring these lists of all of these titles. You can go find these lists of banned books online. They're prepared by right-wing groups like Moms for Liberty, and they usually focus on books related to gender, sexuality, pretty well anything to do with same-sex relationships. But they're certainly not confined to those topics. Among the library holdings in Boundary County, Kimber recalls a fairly innocuous set of mini-biographies for kids. They're called Who HQ, and they introduce young readers to famous historical figures. In all the time that conservative groups demanded Kimber take books off the shelves, they only included one of those biographies in their demands. The one that told the story of Frederick Douglass. Much of the time, the idea isn't so much to ban a particular book or even subject matter. 
In fact, in the case of Boundary County, the library didn't end up banning a single book. They were presented with a list of 400 to take off the shelves, but not a single one of those was on the shelves to begin with. The library didn't carry any of them. But for book banning advocates, that's almost irrelevant. The point is to set something bigger in motion. A war not just on a single book, but on everything that sits outside a particular worldview. I was really looking at that bigger picture. And every time these groups win, they're going to win in North Idaho. Then when do they win in South Idaho? And then when do they win where they get any time? There's that legal precedent set where something somewhere goes into law that erodes somebody's rights. That spreads. It sets that precedence. And that's a terrifying thought to me. Terrifying not just in of itself, but because of what a library represents. Think about all the indoor spaces in your community. Anything with four walls and a roof. Now think about how many of those places allow you to go in there and just exist. Without having to buy anything, without having to pay an entrance fee, or align yourself with a religion. Just a place to be. In a lot of the United States, and in a lot of other countries too, there's a good chance the library is the only indoor space left where that's possible. But in recent years, libraries have also become a kind of social battleground. Take what happened at this branch in San Lorenzo, California last June, when Proud Boys showed up at a Pride Month event called Drag Queen Story Hour. The incident occurred Saturday, and witnesses who wanted to stay anonymous say the group that disrupted the event was acting aggressively and yelling offensive slurs against the LGBTQ plus community. You know, they came in and they were screaming about, like, pedophilia, saying things like, we have to save the children. And I mean, they were terrifying the children. It's not just book bannings and right-wing protests that the library is up against. It's also the simple fact that, because they're one of our last truly public spaces, Libraries have come to shoulder all kinds of social issues for which they were never designed. Everything from combating hate crimes to preventing overdoses. The life of a modern library is about so much more than just books. Yes, It's a hot afternoon in July, and the Chinatown branch of the Los Angeles Public Library is holding a special session. About 30 area residents are here, some wearing masks, some wearing headphones. An interpreter is translating the English that's being spoken into Cantonese. But this meeting is not about books. It's about trying to keep people from getting killed. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day to be with us today and to attend our workshop. Before we walk out of here, we're going to be better prepared to combat hate crimes. And we're going to be able to make an impact this meeting is happening because of an incident a couple of weeks earlier. This was a Friday morning. I was going out for a walk, and I heard somebody screaming. I looked across the street. I was like, what's going on over there? That's Lin Nguyen, a Chinatown branch librarian who witnessed an Asian man being attacked outside the library. I see like this elderly man walking, and then I see this person screaming and yelling, and then all of a sudden I saw this person go up to the elderly man and started punching him in the face. And I, I don't know what came over me, but I started screaming, I was like, please stop, stop this right now, like, I'm calling the police. The suspect then turned on me and chased me 
from across the street. And I ran so fast. Like, I thought to myself, like, oh my God, I'm gonna die today. I threw myself into moving traffic and I got the attention of the sheriff's uh, vehicle that happened to be driving by. Because the man who was attacked didn't want to report it, the cops weren't able to do much. But now, Lynn's got in the library to host an information session on how to deal with hate crimes like the one she witnessed. It's not something most people would associate with the library's core services, but that's exactly the point. In many parts of the country, a library is the last line of defense against all manner of community ills. We're given the, the tools to just, you know, do anything that, that comes to, to mind. And I just felt like, you know, being that I live in this community, I talk to community members, I'm able to, like, understand what they're going through um, as a librarian. Like, th- this has been, like, a dream job for me to be able to do this. In a lot of people's minds, a library is a place you go to get books. That's it. Spend some time in a place like the Chinatown branch, and you quickly start to see a whole constellation of services. Stuff that, in many cases, fills gaping social holes in the surrounding community. It's not just books. Not by a long shot. College prep workshops, helping with the application process, bringing in a college counselor, The services here at the Chinatown Branch Library are really tailored to the people of the community. But because this library, too, has librarians that speak different languages, Cantonese, Vietnamese, it is one of the things that makes this library very special. The situation of the Chinatown Branch is a perfect example of the paradox of the modern library. How does one place do everything? The answer, unfortunately is fairly straightforward. There's no other option. Libraries are one of the last truly public institutions. One of the very few places that is for everyone. You have, you know, 40 years of disinvestment in public institutions. I mean, we're way invested, heavily invested in prisons and jails and heavily invested in police. But we don't have similar investments in public schools, public libraries. That's Emily Drabinsky. She's a librarian at CUNY, the City University of New York, and she's president of the American Library Association. I think I didn't understand when I started working in libraries the extent to which we are sort of the last open public institution, right, the only one. I was in Iowa last week and went to a library where they circulate two carpet steam cleaners. So you've got a device that costs a whole lot of money to rent, you know, and everybody wants to use it, and the library said, oh, let's take that sort of privatized thing and make it public. They're always checked out. The whole list is 45 long, and it's just amazing, right? Like one of the other things I did at that job was uh, teach basic mouse and keyboarding skills. I was teaching my class. I was like, so the mouse is how you control the cursor. And then a woman like picked up the mouse like this and was sort of like with her hand trying to move the mouse through the air, not understanding that the mouse had to be like on a hard surface. So in a world where everything requires an email address and accessing a form online, the library is like the place that makes that possible. But teaching computer skills or loaning out carpet cleaners is one thing. Becoming the avenue of first response for all manner of social dysfunction is something else entirely. And as other public services all but disappear, it's something many librarians are having to contend with on a daily basis. I don't want to have to be saving people from opioid 
overdoses at my job. I became a librarian because I care about reading, I care about children, I care about access to services, whatever. I don't want to be doing that, but there is no other option except for me to implement a Narcan program in my library, right? So, like, I have to do that because otherwise, like, that is just what we do, right? We solve public sector problems as public sector workers. That said, helping someone who's overdosing or going through a mental health crisis hasn't traditionally been something a librarian's expected to know. It's just another in a long line of responsibilities that's shown up on the doorstep of our last truly communal institution. And as a result, a lot of the people who make that institution run, people like Kimber Glidden, the Idaho librarian we spoke to at the beginning of this episode, just aren't able to do it anymore. Well, I, uh, <laughs> I now work in an emergency department for a slowdown in my change of life. <laughs> My change of career, I now work as an emergency room coordinator, and, and it actually is the less stressful option, it, and that's, that is not a lie. In September of 2022, after devoting five years of her life to working in the state's libraries, Kimber decided, for her own safety, to quit her job. And there's three groups of people that play into this. There is the people who, who really forced an end to my career and to my resignation. So there is that fanatical, that kind of fascist group. Then there's the group that are the absolute library lovers, which they came out in force to support us. But the bigger group of people are the people in the middle, the apathetic group, and they're not paying attention. And that's just really where it was. It was like these these people are moving to this region with this very, very, scary mindset and they're loud and they're saying when do we get to start killing liberals and I don't want to go to work every day wondering if today's the day I'm going to get shot in the parking lot. So what happens if libraries begin to disappear? When we come back, we'll visit a county in California where decades of budget cuts provide an example of what the slow death of libraries might look like. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. To get a sense of how a library system dries up, look no further than a mostly rural corner of Central California. I tell people who aren't from California, I say, if you've ever seen California on TV or movies, it's not that California in Merced. Donald Barclay is a retired academic librarian and the president of a group called Friends of Merced County Library. The town of Merced and the county of Merced, um, on most of the counties in the valley, they're, they're agricultural. So you have a very conservative element in the Central Valley. I, you know, it's kind of like a red state and a blue state to an extent. Merced County, population 287,000, is farm country. 
milk, sweet potatoes, almonds, that sort of thing. It's also a prime example of what happens when a library system is starved away to almost nothing. It all started some 30 years ago, the way so many civic calamities begin, with a funding shortage. And they closed down the library, and it was closed for about six months. Some people kept it open by volunteering, but, you know, that doesn't work very well. You can't really run a library on bake sales and volunteers. Donald says the library system never fully recovered from the 94 shortfall. Today, the county still doesn't have the funds to keep many of its brick-and-mortar branches open. There's parts of Merced County whose sole experience of libraries is just one roving bookmobile. A bookmobile that recently had to be decommissioned because it didn't have air conditioning. And the weather got too hot. I think one of the challenges in Merced County is that because the library was closed down and because it was run at less than half speed for a long time, and it's still recovering 30 years later, there's a whole generation of people in this county who don't know what it's like to have a really first-rate library, you know, a really well-funded library. I shouldn't say first-rate because the people who run the library do a great job. I'm not trying to make them sound like they're not doing their job because they, they do great. They do miracles with what they have. But it's not funded at a first-rate level. If we had two or three bookmobiles and we had better branches and longer hours and bigger collections, if people saw what that brings to a community, the value it brings, and of course people tend to think of the public library just as books, you know, okay, the library's where you go to get books, and some people go, well, why do we even need books anymore? We got the internet, you know, there's that attitude out there too, a little bit. But the more you can convince people libraries are about more than books, that they're this thing that, you know, it's a way we come together, we pool our resources we have books, we have space, we have these services can be offered through there and often very efficiently and, and more effectively than through a government office. That's something public libraries can do, but it, it, you know, again, it's convincing people that, that that's the right place for it and it can be done there. The list of things a community loses when its libraries go away isn't just a long one. It also runs the gamut from the most basic services to the very way we think about the idea of community. Here's Emily Drabinsky again, the CUNY librarian who leads the American Library Association. We are about taking public resources, holding them in common on behalf of the public, and circulating them. And so without the library, you lose one of the crucial mechanisms for sharing things and an acknowledgement that the state can act to solve problems for its people, right? That is a thing that the state could do if it chose to. And it does in the form of a library in many places. And so you lose that if you didn't have a library. And like a place to drop your kid off while you'd run an errand, you know, like really ordinary stuff. Like there's the big, high and mighty things that I care a lot about. You lose the last public space standing. That's huge. But you also just lose a place to go pee. And this loss, this slow dwindling away of communal space, it's not just because fewer state and federal dollars are going to these libraries. Recently, something else has been happening. Something much more directly antagonistic. An attack on both the idea of libraries, but also the people who work there. The thing where the library is an enemy of the public feels really new to me and a sign of a different kind of problem. My face is on big PowerPoint slides in Louisiana as like an enemy of the people because I'm a lesbian. So like public shaming in that way, librarians having their emails FOIAed for evidence that they are conspiring to peddle pornography to kids, harassment at your home, harassment at work. A librarian in Boundary County, Idaho, 
in the north part of the state. She was followed home by armed agitators. And when she drove home in her car, they would park out front of her house. They would park out in front of the houses of her staff. And just like, who wants to do that for a living? Like most of us, we don't get paid enough <laughs> to like be the repository of the collapse of human civilization. It's hard to say how all of this ends. Maybe these folks who showed up armed to their town's library board meeting will get tired and move on to whatever the new, more exciting front in this nation's culture wars turns out to be. Maybe the slow evaporation of public funds will continue and the death of libraries will be by a thousand cuts. Or maybe enough people will decide that the last true public space is worth saving. Some of the episodes of this show are about things most people can't just walk down the road and experience. But this one is. Hell, part of the script for this episode was written in a library. So go down and visit yours. See what the folks who run the place are doing. Get a card made out, borrow a book, A world without libraries isn't particularly exotic. It's just a world overrun with commerce, where just about every experience, shared or individual, comes with an entry fee. For most of us, that might already be the default experience of society. But maybe the one place where it isn't is a place we should take care of. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. This episode is produced by Abby Fentress Swanson, with reporting by Emil Klein, and with development and editorial support from Alyssa Jong Perry. Our associate producers are Fendel Fulton and Kendra Hanna, with production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. And research is by Sarah Mathis. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more next week. Oh my gosh, I can check out a a steam carpet cleaner? What? This is amazing. I'm totally for it. Hey, Bob. Yeah.